You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everyone had a great week. I spent mine primarily watching as many Eternal Classic movies from last weekend's Digital Fest as I could. They're still up as of recording this if that floats your boat. When I wasn't doing that, I was re-watching all the Saw movies, because my tastes are very, well, varied. This week on Two Sentence Movie Reviews of Movies I Saw in a Movie Theater, we've got three. Here today, Spiral from the Book of Saw, and Profile. Here today is the second film released in like a month or so that features a platonic relationship between an older man and a younger woman. Is this supposed to be like the replacement for the way older man with the way younger wife movies? Either way, the film is written and directed by Billy Crystal and is woefully mediocre given the talent that made it. It's written well enough, but it's just nothing special. I had to repeatedly look up the name of this film because I kept forgetting what it was called, and then I wrote it into my script for today, and then I immediately forgot what it was called again. Probably not the hallmarks of a classic film. Next, Spiral from the Book of Saw, which is the first in a potential new stream of Saw films. I loved the original franchise, watched all of them before seeing this film this week, so no matter what, I'll always end up being a little biased. If you like the other Saw movies, but thought that all it was missing was some Chris Rock-esque humor, you are in luck, because that is essentially this movie. It was quite tame for a Saw movie, though, which was a little bit of a disappointment when you're used to... Essentially torture porn, if I'm being honest. It's significantly less gory than the others were. Finally, Profile, which is the fourth, I believe, movie taking place solely on a computer screen, which I'm a fan of. But if you didn't like searching from a few years ago or either of the Unfriendeds, this probably won't be your thing. The film is based on a true story of a journalist infiltrating an ISIS recruitment ring, and it is incredible. Easily one of the best films I've seen since the theaters came back. About three quarters of the way through, I was so tense and into the story that I'd clenched my jaw so tight that it hurt to release it. Super awesome movie. Don't sit super close like I did. I was like in the third row. You will get a headache from bouncing your eyes all over the place. Like go mid theater to the back. Now that we've talked about all manner of uplifting films, let's get on to this week's episode. Pixar revolutionized animation by their state-of-the-art technology and masterful storytelling. The moment Pixar entered the animation sphere, the bar for quality animation was rocketed into the stratosphere for the first time in a very long time. Today, we're covering the studio's early days, its key players, and what the future might hold for the studio. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime.
Though they are often tied with Disney historically, Pixar started off as a department in a completely different company. The people who helped foster Pixar into the company it is today have quite the pedigrees and include people like Steve Jobs, George Lucas, and even Francis Ford Coppola. The actual founders, however, are two dudes you've likely never heard of. I surely hadn't. Alvy Smith and Edward Catmull. The duo were part of the New York Institute of Technology in 1974 and were two of the four founding members of a lab known as the Computer Graphics Lab, or CGL, which they began in a two-car garage. Their goal? To revolutionize the world of computer graphics. NYIT's owner, Alexander Shore, believed in what the group was doing so much that he invested $15 million of the school's money into CGL, risking the future of the university in the process. While they were making strides, Alvi and Catmule soon realized that they needed a full production studio to make any real progress in the field. In 1979, their future came knocking. Director of The Godfather and making of the wine your vino ignorant friend brings to a dinner party because they think it's fancy, Francis Ford Coppola, invited Alvi to his home for a three-day media conference. There, Alvi would meet George Lucas, aka Star Wars Man, and the three discussed their visions for the future of digital movie making. For those of you who aren't giant nerds, this would have been between the first Star Wars film's release and the second Empire Strikes Back's release. Lucas offered the CGL dudes all jobs at his studio, and six of them gradually resigned from CGL to move across the country and begin working for Lucasfilm in Marin County, California. George wanted the work set up at his studio. Digital editing, digital sound capabilities, digital film printer, etc. If it could be digital, he wanted a digital. He also wanted to continue the exploration of digital graphics, which of course was why he wanted the CGL guys. The computer division in Lucasfilm was set up in 1979. Three years later, the computer division, in conjunction with ILM, or Industrial Light and Magic, which is the visual effects division of Lucasfilm, created a sequence known as the Genesis Effect, which appeared in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. The sequence, while something we'd likely not think about twice when seeing it today, was actually a massive leap forward in the computer technology sphere. A year after that, in 1983, a man named John Lasseter joined Lucasfilm as an interface designer for one week to work on a film called The Adventures of Andre and Wally B. The film was a minute and a half long short about Andre and a pesky bee that bugs him post-nap. John was a huge animation fan, especially Disney ones, so his career trajectory befits his youthful passions. Before he worked at Lucasfilm, he had already made a name for himself with incredible short animated films while in college. He was even recruited by Disney Animation soon after his graduation from CalArts in 1979. Though a fan of classic animation, John wanted to attempt to blend classic animation styles, with the developing computer graphics technology and got a chance to experiment with that with a proposal for a film called The Brave Little Toaster. Now, the nerdier ones know that The Brave Little Toaster is not a Disney movie, but it was originally developed at Disney. John worked on the project for eight months before presenting the project to head of Disney Studios at the time, Ed Hansen. Hansen hated the idea, saying the only reason to do computer animations at all was if it was faster or cheaper than the already established styles. Lasseter was called to Hansen's office within an hour of that pitch meeting and fired from Disney quite unceremoniously. 
Lassiter had previously met Ed Catmule at a conference where the two had geeked out about their loves of animation. This led to John's eventual hiring at Lucasfilm. The computer group had tons of techies that loved animation, but none of them were actually animators, making John quite the catch considering they wanted to start making animated films. Since Catmule wasn't allowed to hire animators for his division, this is why John got that weird title, Interface Designer. Sneaky sneaky, Mr. Catmule. When The Adventures of Andre and Wally B was released in 1984, it broke new ground with motion blur and character actions upon its release. Not long after, a designer suggested naming a new digital compositing computer they were working on the Picture Maker. Alvy suggested that the laser-based device have a catchier name and came up with Pixar, which after a meeting was changed to Pixar. Soon after, the entire department became known as Pixar. The next major project for Pixar was creating the stained glass knight from the film Young Sherlock Holmes in 1985. The division now numbered about 40 employees, up from the six it started with six years prior. The team had even invented their own computer, the Pixar computer, which was incredibly powerful and allowed high-res images to be converted into 3D ones. The software wasn't just for animation, mind you, and was also sold to the medical industry and the government. While this was great, the computers weren't generating a ton of revenue, and despite the great technological strides they were making, the department was not making money. Because love doesn't always work out, George Lucas was in the midst of a big old expensive divorce in the mid-1980s. Coupled with the drop-off of that sweet, sweet Star Wars moolah after Return of the Jedi, Lucas was not raking in cash like he'd been for the last eight years or so and opted to sell the Pixar graphics group as it was then called. But Catmule and Alvy asked if they could spin off the division and become an independent corporation in 1986, to which Lucas agreed. They dropped all the extra words and just called the company Pixar. Now to find investors. Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, was the one who would eventually come in and save Pixar. Lucas's prior search for investors had led to a previous offer from Jobs, which Lucas initially found too low. He changed his tune, however, after the company had been declined 45 times for funding from other places, 35 times from venture capitalists, and 10 times from large corporations, entities that I assume are kicking themselves to this day, given how everything shook out. Jobs had been pushed out of Apple a year prior to this and was the current founder and CEO of another computer company called Next. Catmule met with Jobs and shared with him his dream to make a fully computer animated film, something that was still years away as the computers of the era just weren't strong enough to handle the processing required. Steve literally and figuratively bought into Catmule's dream, and on February 3, 1986, he paid $5 million of his own money to George Lucas for technology rights and invested $5 million cash as capital into the company, joining the board of directors as chairman. Soon after, Jobs invested $5 million more. He wanted to see what his new employees could achieve. 
The first project under new management was called Luxo Jr., a short film about a baby lamp and a mama lamp. It was the first computer animated short to be nominated for an Academy Award and served as inspiration to the employees. Look what they could already achieve. It's no surprise that Luxo soon became the mascot of the company. Not quite as cute as a big forest spirit, but still pretty cute. Other short films followed, including one featuring a terrifying-looking clown called Red's Dream, and another called Tin Toy featuring an utterly terrifying-looking baby. With each new short, however, Pixar got a little bit closer to Catmule's dream. The big problem was, was that the company wasn't making money, and the hardware division, the one making the Pixar computer, and generating the company's only real source of revenue, was eventually sold off. To keep the lights on, Pixar acquired some new blood with Andrew Stanton and Pete Docter. The company then began working on television commercials, including ones for Listerine mouthwash, Trident gum, and Tropicana orange juice. Their commercial work was enough to pique the interest of Disney Animation Studios in the late 1980s, and the two worked together to develop a computer software known as CAPS, the Computer Animation Production System. Without getting too technical, the best way to describe what this is is that it reduces labor cost, revolving around inking, painting, and general post-production processes revolving around animation. This new software was just the beginning of what Pixar would achieve only five years later. Howdy, my name is Woody, and this is Andy's room. That's all I wanted to say. And also, there has been a bit of a mix-up. This is my Spot, see the bed here. Local law enforcement. That's about time you got here. I'm Buzz Lightyear, Space Ranger, Universe Protection Unit. My ship has crash landed here by mistake. Yes, it is a mistake because you see the bed here is my spot. I need to repair my turbo boosters. Do people still use fossil fuels, or have you discovered crystallic fusion? Well, let's see. Uh, we got double A's. <gasps> Watch yourself. Boom. Miles, who goes there? Don't shoot. It's okay, friends. Do you know these life forms? Yes, they're Andy's toys. All right, everyone, you're clear to come up. I am Buzz Lightyear. I come in peace. Oh, I'm so glad you're not a dinosaur. Thank you. Now, thank you all for your kind welcome. Say, what's that button do? I'll show you. Buzz Lightyear to the rescue. Oh. Hey, Woody's got something like that. His is a pool strike. Only it's... only it sounds like a car ran over it. Oh, yeah, but not like this one. This is a quality sound system. Probably all copper wiring, huh? So, uh... John Lasseter, who had been working with Pixar since 1985, was being courted by Disney in the early 90s, leading to him having to make a choice. He could either stay on the painfully slowly sinking Pixar ship up in the Bay Area, or move back to Los Angeles and work as a director for the company that royally dicked him over a decade plus prior. John chose Pixar. He had an idea. John wanted to make a computer-animated feature film from the perspective of a child's toy. He pitched the idea in 1991 to Disney, whom gave Pixar $26 million to acquire the necessary things to make that film and two others. The relationship between the two studios in those early days was tumultuous to say the least, as Pixar wanted to create their own storytelling identity independent of the Disney look, while Disney wanted a film that looked like a Disney film. This caused tension with Disney 
executives like David Katzenberg, not for the first or last time as you'll see next week, who wanted Toy Story to be edgier than what the folks at Pixar were creating. These early notes led to the character of Woody being way meaner than what would work for an animated film that was technically meant for children. This different Woody is very apparent by animated storyboards created at the time. Like he was way meaner, bordering on hateful. These storyboards were so bad that Disney almost canceled the project. Pixar did a massive rewrite of the script, showed it to Disney, and all was well with the world. The Pixar team initially thought they could render the film over 20 months using 53 processors. Each of the machines in the render farm was named after an animal, and when it completed a frame, it would play the corresponding animal sound. The number of machines in that render farm eventually grew to 300, but even that pales in comparison to the computing power Pixar wields today. In 2015, the company had 23,000 processors at its disposal, enough to render the original Toy Story in real time. Four years and one crazy stressful production later, on November 22nd, 1995, Toy Story was released to all the good news they could have hoped for, both financially and critically. In fact, with $373 million at the box office, Toy Story was the highest grossing film of 1995. One week later, Pixar officially became an animation studio and went public. This raised $100 million for the studio, which they sorely needed as the majority of the Toy Story money, as well as all of its merchandising revenue, went to Disney. In 1997, however, the studios would become equal partners, which Disney was not super stoked about and would lead to tension down the line. The next film to come out of Pixar was A Bug's Life in 2001. The company felt the stress of it being a success. Steve Jobs likened it to a business putting out a product. Sometimes when they go to put out a second one, they don't always realize what made the first one a success or why the first one was popular in the first place, like the success of the Apple II and the failure of the Apple III from his own former company. A Bug's Life came out in October of 1998, and turns out they were worried for nothing. Pixar had the highest grossing film of the year once more. At the start of the film was an animated short called Jerry's Game, which began the tradition of a Pixar short playing before a Pixar feature film. There was some additional drama that came out surrounding this film's release, but that is a story for next week. We are on in seven, six... Five, four, three, two. Get a boss, get a a big, hairy boss. Oh, I'm feeling good today, Mikey. Yeah. Oh, attaboy, attaboy, another dog coming right up. behind, Randall. You know, maybe I should realign the screen and take Just get me another door! Ah, the door, yes, door! Ground broke in 1998 in Emeryville in the Bay Area for Pixar's headquarters, where it remains to this day. Despite the rampant success, the relationship with Disney and Pixar was souring. You other 90s kids likely remember that around this time, Disney loved to make a sequel. At this time, these were direct-to-home video sequels. Disney wanted to do the home video release treatment sequel for Toy Story 2, which originally would only be an hour in length. 
Eventually, the film got upgraded to a theatrical release with a theatrical runtime, and Pixar wanted it to count as one of their three films from the initial contract. But Disney said no. Once more, Pixar was unhappy with the story and script Disney wanted to make and went off on their own to fix it. Lasseter and his team had to do this very quickly as a lot of time had been wasted on the first version. Toy Story 2 continued the studio's winning streak, but the Disney-Pixar relationship was damaged severely in the process. Disney did, however, promise to no longer pursue making sequels for Pixar. Ha ha. Despite tension on the inside, successful films would continue to churn out, like Monsters, Inc. in 2001, which saw the first non-Lassiter-directed film. Longtime Pixar employee Pete Docter was given the chance to step up to great success. He's currently directed four Pixar films and has served as a member of the infamous Pixar Brain Trust on nearly every Pixar film since Toy Story. What is the Pixar Brain Trust? I'm so glad you didn't ask. The Brain Trust is a group of Pixar peeps that get together periodically to review the progress of whatever Pixar film is in development at that time. They look over the characters, the story, and the design. Their job is to make sure that the film in production is always pushing the art form forward on all levels. Their job is also to give creative insight to the director, who may need help from time to time when they get too entrenched in the filmmaking process. The Brain Trust cannot force them to make any changes but it does serve as a support system when they need it, and clearly, something's working. Finding Nemo followed Monsters, Inc. in 2003, which was directed by another new director, Andrew Stanton, whom had been at Pixar about as long as Pete Docter had. Both Monsters and Nemo presented new challenges for the animators, the first being the animation of fur, the second underwater effects, as Finding Nemo takes place primarily underwater. This ability to adapt and excel with new challenges pushed Pixar further into the stratosphere of success, one they didn't want to share anymore. Pixar was done with this 50-50 nonsense with Disney. The two companies attempted to reach a new agreement for 10 months and ultimately failed to do so around January 2004. Pixar wanted the new deal to be for Disney only distributing Pixar films, as Pixar intended to control production and own the resulting story, character, merch, and sequel rights, while Disney would own the right of first refusal to distribute any sequels. Pixar also wanted to finance its own films and collect 100% of the profit, paying Disney only the 10-15% to distribution fee. Pixar also demanded control over films already in production under the old agreement, including The Incredibles in 2004 and Cars from 2006. Disney considered these conditions unacceptable, and Pixar would not concede. Disagreements between Steve Jobs and Disney chairman and CEO Michael Eisner made the negotiations more difficult than they needed to be. When the talks broke down completely in mid-2004, Disney formed Circle 7 Animation to continue making computer-animated films, a company that existed for a whole 14 months. Jobs declared that Pixar was actively seeking partners other than Disney. Even with this announcement and several pre-talks with several other major film studios, Pixar did not enter serious negotiations with any other distributor. Losing Pixar was one of the final nails in the coffin for Michael Eisner. For more in-depth discussion, see my Disney After Walt episode from November 2020. This led to his fall from grace and eventually resigning, quote-unquote, from Disney. 
under new Disney CEO Bob Iger, who was left to pick up the pieces of the Eisner Pixar blowout, as well as Eisner's many, many mistakes in the later days. He really dicked up the theme parks. Negotiations between Pixar and Disney resumed. Iger realized how important it was to have Pixar, as when he went to the opening of Hong Kong Disneyland, he saw that other than the really old, like, princesses, like Snow White, Cinderella, like the stuff from Walt's time, other than them, the only other characters that were kind of in the park and popular with people were the Pixar characters. They literally could not afford to lose Pixar. Jobs didn't need them as much, and in preparation for a potential fallout between Pixar and Disney once more, he announced in late 2004 that Pixar would no longer release movies at the Disney-dictated November time, but during the more lucrative early summer months. This would also allow Pixar to release DVDs for its major releases during Christmas time for the kiddos. The first film on this new release schedule was Cars, and an added benefit of delaying the film from November 2005 to June 2006 was that it extended the time frame remaining on the Disney-Pixar contract and to see how things would play out between the two companies. Disney decided just to buy the whole company outright. In January 2006, Disney would ultimately agree to buy Pixar for about $7.5 billion in an all-stock deal. Following Pixar shareholder approval, the acquisition was completed on May 5th. 2006. The transaction made Jobs, who owned 49.65% of total share interest in Pixar, Disney's largest individual shareholder with 7% valued at $3.9 billion and gave him a new seat on its board of directors. Jobs' new Disney holdings exceeded holdings belonging to Michael Eisner, the previous top shareholder, who still held about 1.7%, and Disney director emeritus and Disney descendant Roy E. Disney, who held almost 1% of the corporation's shares. Other Pixar shareholders received 2.3 shares of Disney common stock for each share of Pixar common stock redeemed. Lasseter was made the COO of not only the Pixar division, but of Walt Disney Animation as well, and became the principal creative advisor at Disney Imagineering, making him an integral individual when it came to overseeing the theme parks. Cat Mule, the remaining Pixar co-founder Alvy had left in 91, retained his title of president of Pixar. Sometimes, if you want something fixed, you just have to throw a metric ton of money at it. Hit film after hit film followed for the next decade. Ratatouille, Brave, Wally, Up, Toy Story 3 and 4, Coco, way more Cars movies than was needed. They make a lot of good movies, y'all. After a few years, Lasseter and Catmule were able to successfully transfer the basic principles of their Pixar brain trust to form a Disney animation brain trust, although meetings of the Disney Story Trust are reportedly more polite than those of the Pixar one. Catmule later explained that after the merger to maintain the studio's separate identities and cultures, despite many people being in charge of both, he and Lasseter, quote, drew a hard line that each studio was solely responsible for its own projects 
and would not be allowed to borrow personnel from or lend tasks out to the other. If there was a problem, the respective studio would have to sort them out. On November 21st, 2017, Lassiter announced that he was taking a six-month leave of absence after acknowledging what he called, quote, missteps in his behavior with employees in a memo to staff. According to The Hollywood Reporter and The Washington Post, Lassiter had a history of alleged sexual misconduct towards employees. On June 8th, 2018, it was announced that Lassiter would leave Disney Animation and Pixar at the end of the year, but would take on a consulting role until then. Pete Docter was announced as Lassiter's replacement, as Chief Creative Officer of Pixar on June 19th, 2018. On October 23rd, 2018, it was announced that Catmule would be retiring. He stayed on in an advisor role until July 2019. When COVID-19 led to lockdowns and the shutdown of movie theaters in March 2020, the Pixar film Onward had just been released into theaters. Disney made the film and the following Pixar release Soul available on Disney Plus in lieu of delaying their release dates. Upcoming film Luca will do the same. Three more Pixar films have been announced over the next three years, and Pixar seems to be just as popular as it's always been, if not more. From its humble beginnings as a hardware company within Lucasfilm to a juggernaut of animation within Disney, Pixar has made a name for itself all on its own in modern animation, changing the style for practically all major animated film releases. Pixar's commitment to story and striking visuals has made them one of the the best production companies in the world, and not just when looking at animation. Pixar is one of the best studios in the entire field of motion pictures. We can go anywhere, do anything. We just gotta stick together. We underdogs have to look out for each other, right? Underdogs! This is going to be the best summer ever. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory. And if you have any questions, you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. If you want to check out anything I talked about today, most, if not all, of it is on Disney+, Plus, including their early shorts. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making this podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help me out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, the last episode of this series in which we cover the history of DreamWorks animation. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Thank you.